Yet another Russian nuclear disaster we can confidently, thankfully, call an accident. Thanks to the dual forces of a lack of science education and a drive to sensationalism, the likes of which we haven't seen since the late 19th century on both counts, you'd think it was Chernobyl all over again. It isn't. It's worse. And not because of the radiation or the loss of life. There hasn't been a nuclear accident due to a wartime application for a very long time. Did a Russian stealth submarine chase off a British submarine trying to launch U.S. cruise missiles on Syria? Did North Korea build a real ballistic missile submarine? Or is it just a hollow shell like its peace village on the DMZ? So I have to ask, with all of this going on this week, is the Cold War back again? I want to mention a listener who signed his name Omar P., who asked a great question in an email through the Cold War Vault website. He asked, are we in a Cold War 2.0? If you would have asked me last week, I might have said no. If you ask me this week, like Omar, I might just say yes. Let's take a look at the nuclear news and what we have to fear this week with Fearmonger Fridays on the Cold War Vault. Let me tell you a story about an elderly, venerable invention called a scramjet. A scramjet is a supersonic combustion ramjet. And a ramjet is a kind of jet engine that... Actually, I was trying to describe this to my wife during an afternoon visit to a Mexican restaurant, and it was made very clear to me where the confusion lies. If you go very fast, the air at the front of the engine, the intake, it gets very dense. Not just hand-out-of-the-car window dense. The air was so dense and hot outside the SR-71 cockpit at Mach 3.2 that pilots could burn their hands on the glass. In fact, maximum flight speed was limited by the temperature of the air entering the engine compressor, which wasn't rated for temperatures above 800 degrees Fahrenheit. So a ramjet uses this. The faster it goes, the denser the air at the intake, and the faster it can go. Ramjets really shine at Mach 3, about 2,300 miles per hour, and can go up to Mach 6, 4,600 miles an hour. But as the speed increases, even though the air density is high, the temperature gets higher and higher, and so there's a crossover on the graph when efficiency will drop because hot air is less dense. When the intake temperature nears the exhaust temperature, then we need something else. And that is a scramjet. A scramjet is a supersonic combustion ramjet. Scram. And this is the bad boy of all jet engines. It can and does, and has, exceeded Mach 6. No moving parts except the 
hydrogen that's shot into the combustion chamber. Though this can really be any fuel, it just needs to behave in the right way at extreme temperatures and explode. Now, let's talk about Russia's freshest nuclear engineering disaster, Project Pluto. Except that isn't a Russian nuclear engineering disaster. Project Pluto is an all-American invention from 1957. Lawrence Livermore, which wasn't called that yet, was commissioned by the Atomic Energy Commission to do something incredible. It would construct a testing facility in Nevada at Area 401 to build a naked nuclear reactor inside of a jet engine. The engine was called Tori, and the project was Pluto. The engine wasn't going to fly, so the ram effect, the high-pressure air coming into the intake, had to be simulated. So 100,000 pounds of pressurized air was pumped into 25 miles of oil well casing pipe set up at Jackass Flats. It was named long before the AEC got there. The air was shot through a million pounds of red-hot ball bearings into the mouth of the engine. The whole apparatus could run for about a minute. Inside the Tory engine, a nuclear reactor was critical and hot as it could get without melting down. The forward motion of the running engine would be pressurized because of the speed, run through the nuclear reactor, be superheated, and come out as thrust. No fuel was required beyond the nuclear reactor rods, and it could circle the planet for months. I want you to remember that I'm not talking about a Lawrence Livermore AEC project from 60 years ago. I'm telling you about something that exploded in the White Sea this week, just rooting us back in a very dangerous present-day reality. What are these things good for? Well, they can operate at speeds that can't be stopped by any anti-ballistic missile systems. They do something else, too. The SR-71 was fast. The U-2 flew high, all to outrun or outmaneuver the Soviet defenses. But nuclear scramjets can fly low. Aerodynamic heating would be the only limitation. They can fly at low altitudes for weeks or months, defeating defense radar. They're currently unbeatable. And so because of that, they are destabilizing in the extreme. A nuclear-powered, nuclear-tipped cruise missile would launch with conventional rockets, get up to cruise speed, and then let the nuclear reactor go critical. Then it could circle the Arctic or an ocean for an almost unlimited amount of time, until the time came to send the attack order. This would put the missile in a very low-altitude, hypersonic trajectory. What then? Well, the missiles were scalable, so they could, in essence, be the size of bombers. 
These bombers, not necessarily with 1957 technology, but absolutely with today's technology, could be completely autonomous. Not that they would need to be, with our squadrons of video game soldiers piloting global hawks, racing from city to city with a load of many, many weapons. And of course, they do have a bonus effect. This is a naked nuclear reactor, sucking in air and spitting it out through the fuel rods. If you're about to go into World War III, you probably don't worry about health and safety, right? So the heat doesn't need to be created through a closed and safe loop. So this cruise missile can just fly indefinitely over cities and towns, creating terroristic radiation hazards. There are minimal particulates, so it isn't a Chernobyl situation. But still, this scenario is pretty terrifying. In fact, it was so terrifying and terrible that the U.S. Atomic Energy Commission canceled the program in 1964, seven years and six months after it was started. The publicly stated reason was that the intercontinental ballistic missile capability had become much, much more developed in a shorter time than had been anticipated. The real reason was simple. The technology was far more destabilizing than could be acceptable in a world that had uneasily settled into a state of deterrence, or, as it was called already at that point, mutual assured destruction. And that brings us to the disaster, accident or incident, that happened in the White Sea a week ago. As long ago as 2008, the Russians were touting a new cruise missile technology. Last year, Vladimir Putin announced the development of the SSC-X9, known by NATO as Skyfall. On the 8th of August, Russia admitted that something had gone radioactively wrong on an offshore platform where the new missile was being tested. They only did this after radiation levels spiked in Severodvinsk and were reported by the mayor's office. It turned out that radiation spiked all along the White Sea coast and pharmacies promptly sold out of iodine drops and tablets. Good for the thyroid. Trust me. The Russian military establishment said that a liquid-fueled isotope-generating rocket had failed. Then it said that it was a power generator for a spacecraft. These are clearly lies to cover up the situation. You can tell because the Russian military establishment is moving its lips. This is a failure of a skyfall test, period. Five people, and then six, were all alleged to be injured by severe radiation exposure and transferred to hospital. If it's fewer than the entire population of the test platform, I would be shocked. The means by which the accident happened are probably less important than the weapon being tested, but we can take a stab at it. It could have been a prompt criticality accident with a nuclear core assembly. It could have been a chemical explosion that blew apart a plutonium core. And it could have been something else. But the point is that there is a profoundly destabilizing weapon being tested by the Russian military complex 
in the White Sea. So what makes this weapons system attractive today, when it was so easily placed on the 1964 chopping block? Why is something old so new again? Well, that would be anti-ballistic missile technology, ABM. It works more reliably than most of you realize. Every slightly successful test comes with a raft of disinformation that makes the whole endeavor look like a military boondoggle. It's a technology that's been evolving since the early 1960s. It does work, but treaties made it slightly unnecessary. Treaties reduced intermediate-range ballistic missiles, and they eliminated multiple independently targeted reentry vehicles, MIRVs. But those treaties have been shredded by the current U.S. administration and largely ignored by Vladimir Putin's government. So a destabilizing nuclear cruise missile fits the attack profile once again. It would either orbit a geographical point spitting out radiation or accelerate toward its target on the aforementioned war day faster than anything that could even begin to think of shooting it down. But, of course, now that the Intermediate Range Nuclear Forces Treaty is abandoned and all of the Cold War treaties have been left behind, in action, if not in legality, then what would stop one, two, or all sides from lofting nuclear weapons into orbit? These systems are called fractional orbital bombardment, and they were never actually banned. The Outer Space Treaty of 1967 says that no one can send a nuclear weapon into orbit, but fractional orbits are fine. A big parabola terminated by a retro burn. But who cares? It's a free-for-all. Treaties don't matter anymore. Treaties, the glue that held civilization together through the Cold War. But hey, treaties, specifically Versailles, caused the Second World War too. So, Listener Carlos P., the answer to your question is yes. There is another Cold War. It looks different, and it behaves very differently. But everything that's old is new again. Thanks for listening to this Fearmonger Friday on the Cold War Vault. You can check out show notes on coldwarvault.com. Like and subscribe on Facebook or Twitter at Cold War Vault. And you can listen anywhere you find your favorite podcasts. Until next time.